1 Samuel chapter 19, verse number 8. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. So mark it down. Saul's got one agenda. He wants to murder David. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, remember, she's his daughter. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So she lied. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. We're going to cover some other chapters. But this is the season where David would enter into a long chapter where he had zero to lean upon. Now, eventually, God would begin to incrementally restore resources to David. He would restore people into David's life. Ultimately, he would give David the throne over Israel, but that was going to be a long way off. And this is a season that David had to go through. And the reason why it's so important in our study is because we rarely think of this. Most people who are familiar with David's life, we remember Goliath, we remember him dancing before the ark, we remember Bathsheba, and then we figure out David dies somewhere along the way. We, we only get a few spotlights or highlights in David's life, but this is one of the most crucial seasons because David could not be fit to become the most glorious king ever in Israel's history, at least the most powerful king in Israel's history before Jesus. He could not be entrusted with that until God brought him down to one absolute core certainty in his life. What was that certainty? That in the end, ultimately, God alone is worthy of our full trust. There's a danger in saying that because the danger could be like, yeah, I don't trust anybody, I only trust God. I want to qualify that. It's not that you don't trust anybody, it's that you don't ultimately trust anybody. You don't completely trust anybody in the sense of your whole life being staked upon them. And David was going to have to find out what it meant to hit a personal rock bottom where he would discover that in that rock bottom season, he would discover that God is sufficient, God is good, and God is enough. And so let me take you through a few chapters, and we're not going to read big chunks of Scripture tonight. We're actually going to go back into chapter number 17, and we're going to show you the first thing that was removed from David's life in this season— we're going to find that David gets sequestered from his family, from his father's house. And so it just says in 1 Samuel 18, verse number 2, before the verses we just read, it says that there came this day where Saul took David that day and would not let David return back to his father's house. So this is after the fight with Goliath. This is after David has gained some military victories. Somehow this young man, became the mightiest military hero that Israel had ever known. David had zero experience in the military, but after he killed Goliath, he soon became in charge of much of the military, and Saul looked upon him as so essential. Remember, Saul knew that God's glory had departed off of Saul. Saul knew that he had no power. He knew that he had the position, but it's not, it's not infrequent that somebody will have the position but don't have God, doesn't have God's power. 
And so Saul had the position, but he had no power. So he needed somebody with power, and David had all the power. And so Saul was crazy. He was murderous. He was a lunatic, but he wasn't unintelligent. And so he said, I need David. So David, you're not going to go back to your daddy's home. So God had given victory to David over Goliath. God had entrusted fame to David. You remember what began his trouble is when after he was, you know, whipping up on the Philistines, the women started writing songs about him. And they said, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed ten thousands. And Saul went dark on that thing because his pride and insecurity and paranoia could not celebrate David's accomplishments for Israel because David was getting the, the bigger name in the song. And so David had become famous. David had had victory. God had all David's childhood provided a good, solid family for David. He had a mother. He had a father. He had seven brothers. And David had always grown up in a fairly stable environment. And so David was still a very young man and now he was being conscripted. He was being forced out of his father's house to serve King Saul. And so very quickly, he was, he was going from boyhood to manhood, just like that. And the Bible says there in the verse that we read that um, because God had provided elevation for David in his military victories, Saul said, you're not going to go back home anymore. Now, this is a small thing because this is normal in most of our lives. There comes a time where as children... We had to become adults and we had to move out from mom or dad's wing and we had to start living on our own. And a lot of the time, that's just a normal phase of life. For some in the room, it happened traumatically. A parent was taken from you or you were taken from a parent. And so it can either be something that's normal in transition, but it can also be abrupt. It could come at a season where um, you weren't expecting it. Regardless of how David felt about it, the reality is this. He was no longer Jesse's boy. He was David the man. And so he couldn't hide out under daddy's name. He couldn't hide out on the farm. He couldn't continue the prolonged adolescence like is so common in our days where, you know, dudes want to live in the basement until they're 40. And eventually, fella, you got, you got to go get a job and move out. And so <laughs> David was no longer going to be a part of his original family. So the very first thing is he's walking in adulthood towards his destiny. He was now doing it as a, as a man. So that's the first thing that was taken from him. It gets way more intense as we go in. So let's look at the second thing. This is in the verses that we read. David gets stripped of his position. Remember, he kills Goliath, but he had already been the court musician. Remember, Saul's got this demonized situation going on. Saul is under demonic attack oppression, possession, however you want to say it, Saul is demonized, and the only thing that seems to relieve him from these manic episodes is David playing worship songs, probably psalm, psalms that he wrote, and he's playing them, and it would soothe the spirit of Saul. And so David began as a musician, then he became Saul's armor bearer. He got promoted because Saul saw the favor of God on David, and so he makes the young man become his armor bearer, and then David eventually becomes part of a military um, leadership in Israel. But look at what happens in this season. First of all, we see again, in verse number eight, we see that David had been committed very faithfully. Remember, he's doing everything right. That's what makes this even harder. David's a man after God's own heart. David's not off in sin. He, he's actually doing the right thing. And the Bible says that there was war again. So here we go again. David is a man of war. And he goes out and he fights with the Philistines. And he just win, win, win. That's all he does. And he struck them with a great blow. So the Philistines, these ancient or these longstanding enemies of Israel, they fled before him. So wherever David went on the battlefield, God just, that anointing, remember, the spirit rushed upon David from the day of his anointing. And so when David's on the military field, he's not just smart and skilled in, in warfare, he's got an anointing from God on him. The spirit of God is on him. And so he has a, a higher elevation of every natural ability, and then he's got some spiritual abilities that his opposition didn't have. And so he's committed faithfully, but then we go further into that text, Look at what he gets. He's treated spitefully. So he's doing everything right. He's serving God. He's serving Israel. He's serving King Saul, even while he knows that Saul is on a throne that belongs to David. Then it says this harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. And as he sat in his house, here we go, with a spear in his hand. David has a guitar. He has the, the lyre in his hand. Saul's got a spear in his hand. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. He's not throwing darts. He's trying to kill David. 
He's literally wanting to murder David. So let's just paint the scene here. All David's doing is what God has called him to do. He's doing it with the right spirit. He's doing it with all of his heart. He's doing it in humility. He's doing it in servanthood. He's doing it to a guy that wants to kill him, and he's literally in the presence of Saul, and Saul is sitting there with a spear in his hand, and he's just listening to David play, and this demon comes upon him, and Saul is already aware that he's been replaced. You've got to remember that too. Samuel told Saul years before, God has rejected you. You have lost your your future reign as Israel's king. He's got has selected a neighbor that's better than you. And I believe by this juncture, Saul is no longer in doubt about who that neighbor that's better than him is. He knows it's David. And so Saul is all about Saul. And so he's thinking, there's the guy who's going to take my throne. I've got my spear in my hand. And he just throws it at him. Says it throws him at him twice. Um, one of the hardest things in the world for us to go through, and you will go through it on some level, hopefully not on this level, but you'll go through it, is when you are doing the right thing, and sometimes the very person that you're doing the right thing for has something against you, has it out for you. It can happen at work, it can happen in churches, it can happen in family, it can happen in the community, it can happen anywhere. Just, I mean, have you ever been there? Y'all get to talk back to me. That helps me. But have you ever been there when, when you're just, you're, you, you come to the realization, this person hates me. I don't know what their problem is with me, but this person does not like me. And it's really difficult when that person outranks you. And David is under the thumb of Saul, and Saul's trying to put the, the business end of a javelin right through David's heart. And so what does David do? Well, David does the only thing that he can do. If a man's trying to kill you, you need to, you need to vacate the premises. And so David ends up having to flee. It says David fled and escaped that night. Now, I want you to get this. When David leaves here, he's not simply running out of a room. He's being stripped of his position. He, my guess is, David probably assumes he is in a natural progression towards Israel's throne. He went from the sheep field to being the musician, to being a military hero, to being an armor bearer, to being over the armies. And he's just a few steps away from the throne. And now all of this stuff crashes down on him. And he's now fleeing the palace. He's going in the exact opposite direction that he thought God was going to be taking him. And he's going to lose everything in this moment. I just, I'll, I'll, I'll submit this to you. He never gets back to that position with Saul. And so anything, if there was anything in David's mind about, okay, I see how God's leading me. This is what God's doing. Open door after open door after open door. Well, the door just got slammed and deadbolted on him, and he loses his position. So if I can put it in, you know, pretty common terms for me and you today, he just lost his career. He just lost his job. He lost his place, his role in the kingdom at that time. And remember, he's a young man. Now, I, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to stereotype men or women on this, but I will say this, it's much more common for a man to struggle intensely when there is a, a pink slip given, a layoff, a firing, a dismissal, or a, uh, a retirement that he's forced into. There's something about men, because I believe to a certain extent, God put a, a working component in us. We like to accomplish things and do things. doesn't mean that women don't, but it is very native to the male framework. And so when a man loses his role, loses his mission, loses his job, loses his career, loses his position, he, he suddenly doesn't have anything to, to lean upon. He doesn't know exactly how he's supposed to stand because whether we want to or not, it is very common for a lot of our, and not just men, but men and women, our DNA, our identity gets wrapped up into what we do. And let me tell you, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's often extremely inconvenient. It can cause great hardship. But the Lord will not allow our identity to be wrapped up in something as inferior as our work. He will not allow that to go unopposed. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to you know, strip, us, strip us of our job every time, but I can tell you this. I know for a fact, I, I've, I've walked with so many men during seasons, and on the back end of losing everything, they said, yeah, my identity was wrapped up in my career, my income, and my, my salary. And they were able to give God praise, though, in the season they were in it, it was devastating to them. 
So we don't know if David's devastated at this point, but I will tell you, before we get to the end of this message, David becomes entirely different emotionally. He enters into fear. He struggles in his faith. And he shows himself, though he is glorious and he's a giant killer and he is a man of humility, integrity, he, he shows that he's fully human. And how does that occur? When God allows everything David leaned upon to be removed. Um, I'm having a hard time not running all these rabbit trails. I need to let the text speak. But I, I just, I just want to season a couple of things for you to think about as we, we move through these. Um, we really don't truly know who we are until everything's stripped away. We don't. And, and listen, this is not an indictment. It's certainly not accusation. It's observation. That we assume that we are made of something a little bit more substantial when everything, when, hey, when you've got the job, when you've got your health, when you've got a happy marriage, when you've got um, a decent career, when your bills are paid, when your kids are, you know, on the honor roll or scoring the touchdown and spiking the ball, when, when your ministry's flowing, when people affirm your gifting and they, they like you and they love you and, and you're appreciated, it's easy to feel really kind of tight with God in times like that because we're not experiencing any major withdrawals from who we are. And the danger for all of us is that we start living by presumption. And I'm going to tell you from personal experience, I, I went through this season. I, I, by the way, just side note, I sent my book to the publisher last week, and there's an entire chapter in there devoted to uh, the crushing of my consecration is what I call it that when God wanted to consecrate me for, for the things that I'm actually walking in now, he couldn't entrust it to me until he allowed me to go through a crushing. And let me tell you, it wasn't, it wasn't my soul or my spirit that was being crushed. It was my presumption. It was my pride. It was me thinking I was um, a little more solid than I actually was. Now, some people don't like that because they say God would never do that. Well, would you let your kids walk around in a dangerous presumption and arrogance? Would you let them live in an illusion and never challenge them? Of course you wouldn't, but why? Because you love them. It doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're a terrible parent or cruel because you're, you're breaking down their illusion and introducing them to reality. It just means you really care about them. And so what he does is, is he begins to strip away from David through circumstances. He takes Saul's murderous intent God's not intimidated by Saul, and God knows what's going to happen to Saul, and he knows what's going to happen with David, but David doesn't know that yet, and so what God does is say, okay, Saul's determined to bring evil upon David. I'm going to use this evil opposition, and I'm actually going to use it to purify David. Saul wants to kill him, and God says, no, I'm actually going to take your weaponry and your strategy, and I'm going to purify my son, and he does come out more pure. So let's go a little bit further, because the next one is tough. This is where... so. Remember with me, David's now lost his, his, his connection to his parents. He's no, no longer a boy. He's living on his own. He's lost his role in Saul's court. He's just had it stripped away for doing nothing wrong. It's total persecution. But now David is going to get separated from his wife. I mean, it's an awesome thing to be able to say, oh, man, the whole world's against me, but at least I got my woman. Hallelujah, I got my woman. And, or I got my man if you're a woman. And so David is fleeing, running for his life. One little detail, the guy who wants to kill him, David married his daughter. So he's still not fully free. So what does it begin to look like? Well, David's separated from his wife here, and he finds himself in an impossible situation. We go into chapter 19, and verse 11 says this, so Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him. So David runs out. Saul just says, I ain't chasing that dude. He calls, you five. Go hang around David and Michael's house. He's probably home by now. He's got to come out sometime. When he comes out in the morning, kill him. Saul just says, no big deal. That's what I do. 
I'm, I'm over it. I'm going to take care of this threat to my kingdom, my throne. So Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But look at Michael. Good, Michael is so good right here. Michael, David's wife, told him, if you don't escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. David is one of those guys who literally, even in these verses we'll cover tonight, David didn't really want to give up on Saul. I mean, he didn't. It was like David's one of those rare people that just wants to believe the best about somebody. And even when David could have killed Saul later on in David's story, he just chose not to do it. He said, no, that's God's anointed. I'm not going to raise my hand against him. I'm not going to do any damage to him. While he's on the throne, I'm not going to mess with him. And so David here seems to be caught between, okay, Saul had a bad night. I need to get out of here. I don't think I'm safe. But there might even be some hope that he can can weather the storm a little bit. But Michael, you know how it works. The women always know before the guys. It's just, it's either intuition or it's, you know, her servants are in the servant grapevine. So the servants at the palace tell the servants in David's house and the servants in David's house tell David's wife, Michael. And Michael says, hey, um, you need to know that if you don't get out of this house tonight secretly, they're waiting down there and they're going to kill you. So it's either intuition or the grapevine. Either way, Michael, and uh, listen, she, gets a, she has a terrible testimony. Michael finishes very poorly. But the Bible's very clear that when she married David, she really loved him. That she really, really loved David. And, and, and up to this very moment, she's looking out for her husband. So she's warning her husband. She's breaking the bad news. And so she's literally saying, David, you have to leave us. You've got to go. And so this is, this is what's interesting. She concocts this little plan. She's like this momentary ally to David. So look in verses 12 through 16. Michael let David down through the window. And he fled away and escaped. I'm not going to ask any of you if you've ever had to crawl out of a window because that's none of my business, but David had to. Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. And Michael took an image there. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's something that looks human enough. And she lays it in the bed. So she puts a lump under the blanket and she puts a pillow of goat's hair on its head and covers it with the clothes or with with the sheets. And when David... When Saul sent messengers to take David, Michael's going to bat for her husband. She's buying him some time. She says, he's sick. So the messengers come back to Saul and say, we can't mess with him. David's sick. Saul sends the messengers to see David. This is how intentional he is about killing his son-in-law. He says to his servants, go get him in his bed. Bring him to me in the bed. I will kill him. That's intense, man. That is hardcore. And when the messengers came in, so they come in and they say, Michael, get out of the way. Your dad says, uh, we need to bring him. The image was in the bed with the pillar of goat's hair at its head. So a little narrative there. But basically what you've got is you've got, at this moment, a faithful wife who wants to help her husband not die. She literally, think about just how humiliating that is. This is the guy with the anointing of God on him. I mean, he's got, he's the rightful heir to the throne. He, that's his throne. And not only is he not sitting on the throne, but he's having to be let down out of his window by his wife so he can flee into the night. And he doesn't know what's going to happen. Now, he didn't have a 1 Samuel 19, 20, 21. We know what happens, but David didn't, so he's running from his life. Now, watch what happens, though. This is a turning point in David and Michael's relationship, and they never recovered. So verse 17 of chapter 19, Saul says to Michael, I think this will be up on the screen, Saul said to Michael, his daughter, why have you deceived me? You let my enemy go. He has escaped. Now look at what she does. Michael answered Saul. He said to me, let me go. He he was going to kill me. That's paraphrasing. I'm going to give her a little bit of credit. I don't think she's just some flippant woman who doesn't care about David. She is dealing with a demonized, murderous, raving lunatic of a father. She grew up under his house. She knows what this man can do when he's under the spirit, that evil spirit that comes against him. And now he is in her face, frenzied, and accusing his daughter 
of betraying him for David. And I think all she was doing was saving her skin. Uh, I'm not going to be too hard on her. It was obviously not the right decision for David. But she lies to her dad. And now her dad, who already wanted to kill David unjustly, now feels like he's got a just reason to kill David. Oh, the dude threatened my daughter. Dude said he was going to kill my daughter. Most of the dads in the room, if, if somebody was, you know, threatening our daughter, I'm saved, but I'm not that sanctified. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you, hopefully God's grace would be there and I wouldn't do anything foolish, but you'd want to. And so now Saul's like, well, baby, I got you. I can't believe I told you he was wicked. I never should have married you to him. Now you just come on back and I'm, daddy's going to take care of everything. But from that point forward, David and Michael were never the same. Frankly, it's a very short time later, Saul actually gives Michael to another man. And while David's away, I mean, you talk about soap opera dysfunction. David's gone. Saul gives Michael to another man. Saul eventually dies. David takes the throne. He comes back in. He says, where's my wife? Oh, um, her daddy married her off to this other dude a few years back. They've got kids now. David's like, go get my wife. Literally. And it's one of the most pitiful scenes. We won't even probably cover it in this, this uh, series, but I'm going to tell, tell you about it now. David goes and claims his wife, and she is taken away from her new husband, and the dude is weeping, going after his wife, and eventually one of David's generals just says, you don't want to take a step further. That's David's wife now. Talk about it jacked up, man. People say the Bible's boring. The Bible is not boring. If you think the Bible's boring, you're boring. The Bible is raw, and it's real. And so Michael is now entering into her, her downfall. And so, so bottom line is this. David lost his role with his parents. David lost his position in the kingdom. Now David has lost his wife. Go a little further. So David's on the run. He needs help. He's a fugitive. Saul's out to kill him. He's got nowhere to go. Anywhere he goes is a danger zone. And he says, oh, I know who can help me. Samuel. Samuel anointed me. Samuel, Saul's afraid of Samuel. Samuel stood up to Saul. Samuel, my mentor. And so now we're going to see what happens when David goes to Samuel. We find out that David gets scattered from his mentor. And so we go into chapter 19 a little further. Verse 18 says this, is David seeking out stability. He's desperate. He's got nothing to lean on at this point, but maybe Samuel can help him. It says, David fled and he escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth or Naoth or Naoth, Smyrna. That's what I call it. I always like to use Georgia names. They went to Lilburn. The... The reality is this, David has nowhere to go and he can't go back home. And I don't want you to miss it. It says that he found Samuel and he told him everything Saul was doing. So David's feeling it. We picture David as impervious and nothing can touch him and he's not moved. And No, man, he's feeling this. And he goes, he says, Saul's out to kill me. I'm a dead man. I'm a fugitive. He hunted me down in my own house. My wife had to let me out a window. I had to run. Samuel, I'm coming to you. I've got nowhere else to turn, but you've always been there for me. Samuel, I remember the oil. I remember what the prophecy you gave me. Samuel, you poured into my life. I can always trust you. And Samuel says, okay, boy, let's, you and I move down to Naoth, and, and we're just going to start a new chapter there. Now, that, that just reads easily, but I want you to put yourself in David's robe for a minute. He's He's literally so far away from his calling, so far away from his destiny. He's going the wrong direction. And that's what it feels like when you've got nothing to lean on. We, we were like, wait a minute, I had the script. I knew how this thing was going to play out. I had the dream. I had the vision. I had the promise. I had the hope. And it was moving this way. Why am I heading now this way with no hope of ever being able to get back to even where I was, much less where I need to go beyond that? And that's life sometimes. The question is not, how do we avoid those seasons? Because I'm going to be honest with you. If you are determined to follow Jesus Christ, if you are determined that your life will bring glory to him, 
If you have crossed that threshold where it's no longer about you, and although God wants you to enjoy, the Bible says that he blesses us, he gives us richly all things to enjoy. God's not a cosmic killjoy that wants to ruin your life. But at the same time, your life's not supposed to be about you. And if we ever get into that place where our life has become about us, God's a good father, and he will put resistance on that. David's destiny is the greatest destiny of anybody living in the land. And so if God is going to take someone high, he has to to bring them to the place where they know they can trust him when nothing else can sustain them. The biggest growing points in your Christian journey are designed by God not to be mountaintop experiences. They are in the darkest part of the valley. That is where you will learn the most lasting, beautiful, empowering spiritual truths. You will encounter God in ways that you feel like you're dying, and you are. Your flesh is dying. Your your misconceptions are dying. Your your illusions are dying. It feels like you're dying. But it is when you persevere and endure through those things, when you come out on the breakthrough side of it, you then have have a story. You have a history. You have a testimony, and you can look back and say, I hated it when I was in it. Oh, but hallelujah, I'm so glad he let me be in it. And, and, and those of you that have been made wise in life, or at least wiser than when you started, you know it didn't come through that season where everything was awesome. Human nature being what it is, and even Christians, I mean, we're, we're not immune to this. You're still human. You might be saved, you might be spirit-filled, you might be anointed, but you're still human. And there's something about human nature that we don't, we don't stay aware of our desperate need for Jesus always when things are perfect. We need a little thorn. We need a little trouble. We need some, we need some opposition. We need some resistance. Say, yeah, but I don't, I don't think that's my destiny. Well, it's not your ultimate destiny, but there's, there's a, a designed or an assigned place where you will have no resistance. It's called heaven, and we're not there yet. And so as David was having his crutches removed, he's now with Samuel. So, okay, well, cool. He's got his mentor. Nothing like having your mentor there. Nothing like having a spiritual father, spiritual mother to speak into your life there. And so we, by the time you get done with chapter 19 and you enter into chapter 20, here's what it says in chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? Jonathan is Saul's son, David's best friend. Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Now, let me tell you what I didn't tell you. In between the chapter 19 uh, where he runs to Samuel, in between that verse and the end of that chapter, guess what? Saul finds out that David and Samuel are hanging out in Naoth. So what does Saul do? Saul does what Saul does. Pigs oink, dogs bark, Saul kills. And so Saul says, go down to Naoth, kill them all, kill them, all. Kill them both. And so Saul sends, this is, this is a crazy little interlude too, Saul sends a bunch of his guys down there, a bunch of servants down there to capture David. Saul wasn't even going to leave the palace. He's like, go to Naoth, go get David, and uh, bring him back to me, and I'm going to take care of business once and for all. So he sends his servants down there. They get hit with the power of God. It's it's a fun chapter. It's it's weird. It's so weird. So they get hit with the power of God. I mean, they're prophesying. They're they're just getting wrecked. And so they stumble back to Saul, and they say, we don't know what happened, but we do not have David. Some happened to us. I think it was the Lord. So Saul looks at these guys, and like, you guys, man, y'all are posers. Let me go down there. So Saul gets the chariot out polishes up the rims, gasses it up, comes down to Naoth, enters in, and he starts looking for David, and as soon as he takes one step too many, the Spirit of God hits him, boom! And it says he just loses it. He's prophesying. He's getting hit. He's just getting wrecked by the Lord. And what that does is it sends him back home saying, I don't know what happened to me. And David has, God buys David a little bit of time to get out, but here's the deal. He has to leave Samuel. He's all alone again. He lost his mentor. Watch it with me. He lost his mom and dad. He lost his position, his career, his role in the kingdom. He lost his wife. 
He fled desperately and poured his heart out to his mentor Samuel. They started a new chapter together in a new city, and soon enough, they barely got the pictures hung before Saul comes into town, and David goes one way and Samuel goes another way. So there he is. It's almost like God is intentionally saying to David, David, I love you, but I'm going to entrust so much to you that I cannot hazard you ever placing your confidence in anything even as good as Samuel. So where is he? He's, he's with uh, his best friend, Jonathan. So he leaves Samuel. He's like, okay, this is risky. I'm going to start heading back towards the danger zone, but I'm going to do it undercover, and I'm going to get word to Jonathan because Jonathan and I are in covenant. Jonathan loves me, and I love Jonathan, and Jonathan knows his dad's a maniac, and I, I just need a friend. I just need a friend. Um, when you're at rock bottom and you've got nothing to lean on, you will say those words. I just need a friend. In that moment where you have nothing, your, your heart will just say, I need somebody who gets me. Somebody who will listen. Somebody that will weep with me if I need to weep or just sit silent with me if I need to vent. But I need a friend. And so that's where David was. But he, this, is, this is not going to end the way David wants it either. And you're going to find David gets estranged from his best friend. By the way, Jonathan was an amazing friend. In chapter 20, verse 40, Jonathan gives his weapons to his boy. That's his servant. And he says to him, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as his servant boy had gone, David comes out of hiding and he comes out from behind the stone heap and he falls on his face to the ground and he bows before Jonathan three times. He is still showing honor. David's lost everything, but he's still one that gives honor. He's still retaining his humility at this point. He is broken. He's no longer big, bad David, the giant slayer. He is David, the fugitive. He's broken. He's got nothing to lean on. And he comes to Jonathan because David knows Jonathan would do anything for David. So he is crying and he's weeping and they begin to talk, uh, going a little bit further. Even though Jonathan was this amazing friend, he's still a limited friend. It says they kissed one another. And I went into this last, in the last message. This is not a sexual thing. This is Middle Eastern ancient greetings, weepings. There, It's not like Westerners, you know, I don't want no dude kissing me. I mean, I'll, I'll take a hug, but you notice this? Even when guys hug, we, we still have to hit each other. Very rarely do guys just hug and hold. We like, we, we've got the three-second rule and a pat, and then we break. We're done. Women, y'all just, y'all hold hands. Y'all cry on each other. Y'all hold. And, but in Middle Eastern, ancient times, very common. I mean, they, you've seen it in Middle Eastern times today. They kiss each other. They kiss each other on the cheeks. It's nothing sexual at all. It's just brotherhood and affection. And, and, the, and the Bible says they kissed one another and wept with one another. So they were feeling each other, and David was weeping the most. So here's, here's the dam is bursting. It's coming forth, all of his emotion. And then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Jonathan said, David, you got to get out of here. He says, we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. He's, Jonathan's saying, David, you got to get out of here. And so David rose and departed. So David goes this way, and Jonathan goes back to the city. Let me tell you, by the way, what had happened. David had snuck into the city earlier. He got word to Jonathan. Jonathan, I need to know if, if your dad is still intent on killing me. Is there any hope? Jonathan set up a scheme whereby he would shoot an arrow a certain distance. If the arrow went uh, a certain distance, David would know he could come out of hiding. He could talk to Jonathan. Jonathan comes and he tells him, my father is going to kill you. David, there's no hope. You can't come back home. D Jonathan was a limited friend. He could have compassion. He could provide information, but he couldn't save David. David here now knows there is nobody that can or will help him. And so Jonathan, I mean, I can only picture it. He's weeping. They're crying. Jonathan, who is a good bit older than David, has to say to David, David, you just got to go in peace. God's with you, David. I mean, literally, Jonathan's, some of his final words was, David, I can't help you, but 
the Lord's with you. You need to know the Lord is with you. And in, in saying or hearing that, David's recognizing, is he? Because I don't have my mama and my dad, and I, I don't have any access to the things I was doing towards the throne, and I, I, I don't have my wife. I miss my wife, and Samuel I'll never see again, and now, Jonathan, you're telling me you're my only friend. You're my best friend, and you're gone. And so David, it's a very lonely scene. David is now a man without a country. So he starts heading one way. Jonathan goes back to the city. So let me just ask you, when you don't have any person and you don't have anywhere to go, what do you do? And he's the anointed one. He's the man after God's own heart. David's not reaping sinful crops from sinful seeds. David's done everything he can do to honor God. This is a test of our faith, friends. Is God still reliable when life is chaotic? Is God still good when life is terrible? Can we believe beyond the moment and see? Can we, can we, can we retain our confidence in the character of God when we completely don't know what he's doing? And so David's got nowhere to go. Now, let me tell you where he ends up. Um... This is the last part. In chapter 21 and verses 10 through 15, he loses the last thing he has. Do you know what it is? His dignity. David is shamed in his reputation. What does he do? He's got nowhere to go. You know where he goes? Well, I'm going to tell you. He's operating in fear. Verse 21, it says, excuse me, chapter 21, verse 10. It says, David and arose and fled that day. Jonathan said, go. David said, I got no choice. And he fled. So fear, fear is now driving David and he's fleeing one person, Saul. One person has wrecked his life. One person has set up the context that is ruining David's external life. And he's very afraid at this point and he's leaving. And where does he go? Well, the end of verse 10 tells us. He went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, let's do a little test here. Who have we met in this story that came from Gath? Goliath. Now, watch this. David goes to the Philistine capital. Now, this is years after he, he, he killed Goliath, but it hasn't been that long. And he has nowhere to go, and somehow in his mind, and it, was, it wasn't very far away, it was very near the border of Philistine territory and Israel's territory, and David just says, I'm, I'm going into Gath. I don't know what he was thinking. I, I can surmise, maybe he's thinking, Saul has proven he's a coward. He'll never follow me into the Philistine territory. I'm probably safer among our sworn enemies than I am in the presence of Saul. Or maybe David's thinking, hey, it's, I was a little kid back then. Maybe they won't recognize me, and so I'll, I'll just mosey on in. We don't know what David's thinking, but that's what happens when you're desperate. And by the way, it's also what happens when you're operating in fear. Now, I'm not here to cast stones at David because I can tell you um, I'm really happy that none of you could read my journals when I was in a six-year season like this. Six years. David would be in many more years than I was in, but I was in six years of a season similar to this, not as desperate as David's. Nobody was trying to physically murder me, but there were days where it felt like it. When we're tested, let me tell you, let me give you this. I'm almost done. When we are tested, when we have nothing to lean on, when we have a very real foe, opponent, enemy, when we have everything stripped away, we're either going to fixate on the oil of Samuel or the spear of Saul. We're either going to fixate on the thing which established us, the oil, or the thing which threatens us, the spear. David, for a short time, got distracted from remembering the anointing on him that came from Samuel. And all he sees is the spear. He only sees what's against him. And because of that, he's operating in fear and he ends up in enemy territory. So by the time you get down to 
verses 11 and 12, this is what it says. So David gets in the city. He thinks he might be able to come in under the radar, but he thinks wrongly. Servants of Achish said to, to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Isn't it amazing that his enemies knew that David was the king? Saul knew David was the king. That's why Saul's fighting David. But David couldn't get to the throne that everybody knew belonged to him. And they, they asked, is, is, did they not sing to one another of him in dances? <laughs> it's crazy. They know Israel's top billboard, top song in Philistine territory. Yeah, it goes something like Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. That song had made it all the way into Israel. By the way, they knew it because it was about them getting their backsides handed to them by David and his army. And so David took these words to heart. I bet he did. And he was very much afraid now of the king of Achish. Wherever David goes, he's afraid because it's in him now. So he was fully exposed in the middle of his enemy's territory, and here's where we see it, and this is where we're ending tonight. David hits rock bottom right here. He changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spit run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? The man with the highest calling from God Almighty is in enemy territory pretending to be a lunatic with spit running down his beard as he claws at the city gates just so people might have compassion on him, say he's no longer a threat. Look, he's gone crazy. And the king says, that's fine. I don't want him anywhere near my house. And there he is. That's David. I don't want any of us to ever go to this extreme, but I'm going to promise you something, child of God who wants his or her life to glorify the Lord. You, you and I probably will never hit that, but God knows what we need, and he's not cruel. If you have believed the gospel that says, accept Jesus and God makes your life instantly and eternally then you've believed a false gospel. Although your eternity is awesome, um, you're in a war until you, get, until you step into eternity. You're in a war. You have an enemy. You have a threefold enemy. And you also have a God who says, I'm going to conform you into the image of my son. And my son suffered. And my son was rejected. And my son was betrayed. And my son was misunderstood. And when my son was on the cross, if you'll remember, he cried out to me, his father, my God, why have you forsaken me? And child, my child, in your heart of hearts, I know you want to be like my son but you not only need to experience the power of his resurrection before resurrection can happen, you have to know the fellowship of his suffering. So these are big boy, big girl moments where we push back from the American version of Christianity, the schlacked version, the version of Christianity that has sugary icing on the top of it and it's always delicious and always available. You can eat it and eat it and eat it and you never get fat. It's not the Bible. It's not the gospel. So we push back from that and we say, am I really in this thing? Lord, am I really in this thing for the long haul? Because 
I may be presuming that I'm stronger than I am. I may be presuming that I'm more committed than I am. I may be presuming I'm more spirit-filled than I am. I may be presuming that I am more committed and, and consecrated than I am. And Lord, right now, I just want to repent of my pride. And I want to say, God, only you know. God, if I need my crutches removed in order for me to know, then give me grace. I trust you. But Lord, I'm telling you right now, I'll need grace. So I want you to stand to your feet tonight with me. He's good when life is terrible. And life isn't always going to be terrible. By the way, David gets the throne. David gets the palace. David gets victory, victory, victory. This is a season. Seasons have a definitive beginning and they have a definitive ending. Faith says, I'm in a season. This isn't forever. That's what you need to leave here with tonight. Because I can tell you a message like this will make you say, ooh, I'm going to run to Gath. I'm going to run. Well, I don't know who's after me, but I don't want to be there when they get me. I, I, I get it. But here's the thing. It's a season. And he's in it with you. The Lord is in it with you. And that's what he wants us to learn. The whole, the whole lesson of the season in David's life is God saying to David through circumstance and through imparted wisdom, David, no matter who's after you, no matter what happens to you, I am with you. And that's what I want you to know. I want you to know that I'm enough. I am enough. So Father, in Jesus' strong name, the name that never shifts never reduce we just yield afresh tonight we are humbled but we are hopeful you will not leave us you will not forget us and you will take every opposing force that comes against us you will wrap it in grace and it will turn out to be our blessing because it'll teach us who you are and how reliable you are. We declare it by faith. We ask you, Lord, keep it fresh in our hearts when we have nothing to lean on. In Jesus' name, amen.